So what I'm really saying is that I think the real task before us is to actually still stop the erosion as opposed to, I don't think we're quite ready to truly turn everything around and rebuild the future. There's some very encouraging projects that some of the fellows in LA are digging up the LA River, which is that channel you see in the, in the Terminator movies. That channel's being torn up and they're gonna allow the nature to come back. We need more projects like that. But what I'm really saying is that I would hope 30 years from now, at the very least, things would be the same or better and no worse. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to the Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your co-host, Vernice Miller-Travis, and my other co-host, Mike Hancocks, is unable to join us today. Today, we're continuing our series of interviews with Civic Spark. Over the past several weeks, we've interviewed some of the extraordinary Civic Spark fellows and talked about the sustainability and equity projects that they've been working on across California. Today, our guest is Cyrus Keller, who is the Bay Area North Regional Coordinator of the Civic Spark Program. Cyrus has spent over 50 years working as an activist and professional. He spent 10 years working on the Space Shuttle Program, 10 years as a high school computer programming teacher, and 10 years managing software training at Hewlett Packard. He has been a longtime activist for social justice working at the local, state, and national levels. He brings this unique perspective and experience as a mentor and participant to Encore and Civic Spark. Cyrus, welcome. Thank you. Very pleased to be here. So, Cyrus, you've had a long and very diverse career. Tell us how your experiences working for Civic Spark compares with other positions you have held during your career. How is this experience different? I think the main thing that's different is the actual composition of the workforce. <laughs> it's a big difference. I think more than 50% of the program this year are women. And of the fellows that I am working with, there are three that are men and four that are women. And that's unusual for me. And most of my career, men have dominated the space. It's not entirely true of education, but in the high school I worked at, we had pretty much parity between women and men. But it's unusual for me in more the science and technical fields that I've had experience in to find that many women. So that's really a, a sort of refreshing and rewarding change, that there are that many women in this program. And apart from the work, I'm very proud to be a part of empowering women to take on careers in science and science-related fields. So tell us about the Civic Spark program and your role. Well, basically, the program is a sponsored program through AmeriCorps, the Governor's Office on Planning, and the Local Government Commission, which is an organization that has about a 30-year history of trying to build capacity around a number of issues at local municipal levels. So what Civic Spark does is we are pairing recent graduates in environmental science, environmental management with local governments to build their capacity to address the issue of climate change. 
both long-term and short-term. My role is to supervise a half of the fellows in the Bay Area. There are 14 fellows in the Bay Area and provide them with day-to-day guidance, career development, assistance in terms of how to navigate through the bureaucracy that they're encountering, many of them for the first time, and also provide some insight in terms of perhaps uh, identification of issues and other aspects of what it might be like to address climate change as a homeowner, as a person of color, as a member of a, a broader community, and also in a situation like the barrier, which is somewhat unique because we have a lot of support around environmental issues, but we still also have a lot of work to do. What excites you the most about the Civic Spark program? You've done a lot of things, and, and here you are, you know, applying your, your diverse talents in yet another arena. Well, it was sort of an interesting, I think probably the most exciting thing for me was the coming to the realization that a lot of the community organizing I did actually does fall under the umbrella of environmental justice. I can recall back in the days when Ben Chavez and others were first pioneering this concept of environmental racism or environmental disparity and drawing sort of a circle around communities of color and saying, if you look at them as environments, just at a practical level, what's going on? If you, and then if you address some of the actual environmental issues, be it waste management to housing being built over sites where the water table's not pure and that sort of thing. So for me, what was exciting about this was recognizing that I could connect a lot of the work I had to the environmental movement and then sort of working on those issues from this side as opposed to from the community grassroots-based side. So it's funny that you mentioned Ben Chavis. Um, I worked for Ben at the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice and worked with Charles Lee, who is the principal author of the report Toxic Waste and Race in the United States. And I by a pure stroke of genius, happened to be there at the ground floor in the birthing of the EJ movement. And it's nice to hear somebody who was inspired by that work and took it to another level in your own sphere. It's really good to hear that. Well, the link was, you know, once it was, it was for all of us, I think. As soon as you looked at it that way, you realized this is equally as legit as any other community-based issue, if not somewhat a defining issue for the community. Because, you know, when it comes to the environment, it cuts across all the other things. It ultimately, as I told a group of people at Berkeley last week, you know, ultimately you recognize we all have to breathe. Indeed. I'll tell you a funny anecdote. When we were doing the research, I was so excited and I remember sharing with my grandmother what I was working on. And so she said, I'm so glad that I'm not a member of United Church of Christ. And I said, you know, Grandma, why would you say such a thing? And she said, because y'all spend how much money on this report? She said, any black person in America could tell you that there is a relationship between where people of color live, where poor people live and where bad environmental things are. And I was like, well, now we have definitive proof. And she said, yeah, okay. She was not impressed. (laughs) I I get it, but we have to play the quantitative and qualitative. Indeed, 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 indeed. Tell us about the kind of impact the program is having broadly. Well, I think overall the program is having, it varies. And, and, you know, there are eight regions in California. So some people are working on water rights issues. Some people are working on climate action plans, uh, which is part of a requirement that cities in California have to submit plans that talk about how they're going to address the climate issues that are identified, greenhouse gas, sustainability, energy efficiency, and so forth and so on. And in that plan and report, they have to talk about how they're planning to reduce their carbon input. 
the fellows come into that situation, and it, and that work can involve anything from surveying where your streetlights are to actually working in multi-family units and trying to initiate, sponsor, and promote recycling programs, clean neighborhood programs, and that sort of thing. So I think the, the biggest impact is in terms of policy and making sure that because many of these cities today, thanks to sort of the funding trends of the current and past Congresses, have lost funding to have full-time people to come in and update these plans and keep an eye and do the due diligence to protect their communities and the neighbors in the neighborhoods uh, from bad environmental uh, practices or encroaching poor air quality and things of that nature. Indeed. So we hear a lot of negative or at least things in the media about the work ethic and expectations of millennials. How does this generation of young people strike you in terms of their values and their work ethic? You know, that's interesting. The segment that I'm working with are taking this opportunity to do volunteer service for a year through AmeriCorps. They get a living stipend, but that stipend is below $15,000 a year. So in no way could you stretch that. I don't even think a Republican could turn that into a living wage. But the thing is, these young people are committed to the causes that they are providing this service to, number one. And then they all work very hard and very diligently at it. So I understand what people are saying, but at least this wing of the millennials are not driven purely by the desire to accumulate material wealth. And they're certainly not driven purely by a, a, a self-definition that says, if I don't get mine, I don't care if anybody else gets theirs. Wow. That is so good to hear. Is there one particular project you think exemplifies the value that Civic Spark creates? I think there's one activity, one of the inherent pieces of the program for the fellows, and it's part of the logic of the curriculum and the way the program is designed, is that we want each fellow to actually get some program management experience. So we ask them to take on a community service project and manage it from cradle to grave, from inception to completion. So the activity is that they have to do a service project. The form it takes varies from place to place, but that would be the thing I would identify that I think exhibits the real value that we do service projects as a component part of the program and each fellow does a service project or the fellows in a region do a collective project. And then in addition to that, we also participate in three or four national service days where we go out to various places and perform community service. We In San Francisco, the, the region, one of the fellows figured out that we could go to a Habitat for Humanity site and help build houses for uh, low-income people. So that's what we did on our service day. How do you think this program impacts the fellows and the communities that they're working in? Well, in terms of the communities, I think the impact varies. I can give you a couple of examples. We had a fellow who was working with the Oakland city government and was asked to help prepare a presentation that the city planner was going to give at the Paris conference on climate. Mm -hmm. So there's a direct impact, right? But the real story behind this is that once the presentation was done and the director went to Paris, one of the other fellows said, you know, Piedmont, which you probably know sits right essentially as a small community within Oakland city boundaries. One of the fellows is working in Piedmont. So he says, well, let's do a report back and let's have the Oakland mayor, the Piedmont mayor, 
the sustainability manager from Piedmont, the director of planning sustainability from Oakland. Why don't we have him come back and give a report back on the Paris conference to the community? So that sort of closed that loop in an unexpected way where you had the two cities and a open public meeting that was well attended by over 300 people came to hear what had been talked about in Paris and how their cities had been represented and in particular review some of the data that had been shared by the city of Oakland with the international community on climate issues. Wow. So we've talked to a lot of Civic Spark fellows in Southern California. Can you give us a sense of what are some of the kinds of projects folks are working on in Northern California in the Bay Area? We have a per- one of the fellows is working on water management project in the uh, South Bay. As a part of that project, what that individual was doing was going to the elementary schools and doing water surveys at the elementary school. Essentially, in short, what that does, what that involves is going around to look at all the water fountains and in the bathrooms and checking to see if there's any drips or any unattended leaks and then trying to use data to calculate the water use at the school and compile that data and do an analysis that might lead to preserving more water and less wastewater, certainly reducing wastewater by identifying the leaks and then getting them scheduled for repair and that sort of thing. So that's one side of it. Several of these fellows are working on climate action plans, in particular looking at greenhouse gas emissions over the last five years and helping the cities to calculate what the current rate of greenhouse gas is and then coming up with action plans to reduce carbon footprints, uh, either through increased recycling, uh, better energy use, including solar, sustainability practices, and that sort of thing. Uh, a couple of the fellows are actually working on modifying or writing city ordinances around green business and uh, energy sustainability. Most of those ordinances require certain types of retrofits or uh, new construction to meet environmental standards when businesses are building out for to open up new businesses or doing repair and construction. And it's an incentive-based program, so we're not just sticking it to the small business person. We, we're there to assist. That assistance ranges from cash incentives, discounts, and it also extends to providing the necessary specialized tools through lending libraries to the contractors who actually do that retrofitting work. And then there's a whole other group of people who are working around Save the Air. A fellow came up with a great idea. Uh, there's a program here to reduce idling. So they're going, the Contra Costa County School District has agreed to start a program where we're going to have the students at the schools work with us to have make sure parents are turning the cars off if they're going to be there for more than two or three minutes to reduce the idling and the, uh, reduce the amount of uh, carbon emissions that are coming from cars. Wow. That's some really cutting-edge stuff that the fellows are working on in the Bay Area. Yeah, I think so. And then there are a few other projects as well. I mean, some people have been pr- promoting bicycle work days, employee days, and employee months where employees agree to take public transportation, that sort of thing. But it's been quite quite rewarding, I think, for the fellows. and also had a very good impact on, uh, I think, the, the outreach that they've done in the communities that they've worked with, including and their programs like in Richmond. They're putting improved recycling bins in all the high schools in Richmond and in multifamily dwelling units in Richmond, improving the uh, positioning and beautifying, as it turns out, the waste recyclables. You know, you see those public waste baskets that have like the recycling hoods on the top. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the fellow discovered, and I think she either did the research, but it turns out that they get people vandalize them, right? People will mark them up. Kids will graf- put graffiti tags on them and stuff like that. 
Well, it turns out that if you do something as simple as having them painted or put mosaic on them to cover the rock, it reduces the vandalism by 50 or 60% or more. Wow. So, and then it turns out, so this fellow actually found some funding and did an RFP project to get artists to submit ideas to do mosaic work on the city's uh, trash cans. And that plan is, was funded, it's going through, and that work will start sometime later this fall. Wow. So, I mean, there are little things like that. But, I mean, on the whole, if you live in that community and suddenly all the trash cars go from looking like little dumpsters to actually looking like something that enhances the view, and, you know, it, it actually makes a difference in the day-to-day quality of life for people. So, Cyrus, you've, you, are you originally from the Bay Area? No, not originally. <laughs> you've lived there for a really long time, though. Yes, I have. But I was actually born in the Midwest, but, you know, that's sometime in the last century. (laughs) So what is it about the Bay Area, about California as a whole, but the Bay Area in particular, what is this ethos about sustainability and equity and livability that is so ingrained in the consciousness and even in the governance of jurisdictions in California? We've talked to the mayor of Richmond for Infinite Earth Radio. Um, We've talked to a lot of people in the Bay Area, and there is just all kinds of kinetic activity going on to really advance this equity, social justice, environment, climate justice conversation. What is that in the air and in the ethos in the Bay Area? This may not be the answer you thought you were going to hear, but it is what I actually believe is true. See, I think one of the things that makes the most substantial difference about many of the states in the West, but in particular California, is that there was never slavery in California. Mm. And I think in every state that existed prior to the end of slavery, and it there were slaves in those states. And then in the southern states that succeeded to maintain the right of slavery, you enculturate or you acculturate that polarization and that fundamental distinction as a way this as a norm in the society. And that was never a norm in California. Wow. That may be the deepest thing that anybody has said thus far on this podcast series that we've been doing for a year. That may be the deepest analysis that someone has brought to some thinking. And and you're right. It is absolutely not anything that I was I was thinking about or was in my reach to to make that connection. There was discrimination against the Native Americans, the indigenous people here. But if you intersect that as happening under the Spanish and understand that it happened more under the Spanish than it did as an outgrowth of U.S., the racial dynamics of the United States, it even cushions that. Then on top of that, if you try to import racial categories into California, you immediately run into a three-way polarization because you had lots of Chinese people here who had been brought in for labor purposes, like building the railroad. You had an indigenous population that was native people as well as Hispanics. And then you had black people and white people here. So you bring in the black and the white, but there are already these two other groups that sort of prevent them from repolarizing the whole society along those racial lines. Who themselves have been there for millennia. That's exactly right. You find the same thing in New Mexico. Uh, Indeed. When, you know, there the Colorado's a little different. They killed a lot of the Indians in Colorado. I hate to put it out like that, but that's really what happened. Yep. But Santa Fe is one of the oldest cities in the United States. You know, it's been there for over 400 years because it was a colonial mission city before the U.S. expanded and took it from Spain. 
So all that changes, I think, what happens in terms of, you know, when you move to California, what are the roots here, right? Yeah. It's sort of like the fact that, you know, there's real differences between the United States and England, in part because there's not a history of feudalism here either. Indeed. You know, there's, you don't find families who've been living on the land since their ancestors were serfs. Indeed. Of, you know? Indeed, indeed. Have you ever written about this? I have participated with others who've written about it, yes. I think you should give it some serious thought. I mean, this is, you know, and and it says a lot about the growth and development of our nation as a whole, but particularly at this difficult juncture in our history and evolution around race and settlement and development and the future of our country. I mean, I really think you have a lot to contribute to that conversation. That is a really profound analysis that you have. And I hope you put that out there more in a lot of different forms. We're really glad we got you to talk about this on our podcast. So I have three more questions for you, which we call our lightning round questions. So I'm going to ask you the question. I want you to say the first thing that pops into your head. Wait a minute. My buzzer's not working. <laughs> I, I will give you 20 seconds after I okay. ask the question to answer. So here we go. Okay. First question. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities, what would it be? Incorporating environmental education as a requirement from elementary school through high school. Here, here. What one action could our listeners take to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? I would say the one thing that people could do that would contribute the most to that would be recognize the interdependency between us all, that even though your individualism is based upon the fact that we collectively produce the reality we live in. Indeed. And then if you are successful in the work that you are doing, what will the Bay Area, what will California, what will this conversation look like 30 years from now? The minimum program would be it would look the same as opposed to no worse. Anything other than that would be a plus. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be. No, that's that's profound because 200 years ago, it was covered with beautiful redwoods. That's right. And that's not going to happen again. So what I'm really saying is that I think the real task before us is to actually still stop the erosion as opposed to, I don't think we're quite ready to truly turn everything around and rebuild the future. There's some very encouraging projects. Some of the fellows in LA are digging up the LA river, which is that channel you see in the, in the Terminator movies, right? When they go down into that ditch. And also the sci-fi movie, them about the giant ants. That's right. That channel's being torn up and they're going to allow the nature to come back. We need more projects like that. But what I'm really saying is that I would hope 30 years from now, at the very least, things would be the same or better uh, and no worse. And it's not entirely clear to me that, that we are at a point politically, we have the political will nor the resources channeled correctly to prevent things from getting worse. And by worse, I also I'm also addressing the infrastructure issues that our country are facing, you know, that's part of our environment, taking care of our environment is making sure that we actually do keep our roads, bridges, and dams together, you know, systematically do something different with them, but letting them fall apart is not good stewardship. Well, Cyrus, I am so sorry that Mike wasn't able to join us today. He would have loved having this conversation with you. 
Thank you so much for making this time. You are just doing some extraordinary work. A shout out to the Local Government Commission and the Civic Spark Program. Thank you so much for joining us, Cyrus. All right. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you joining us next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.